track. Thank you very much. Sorry about that. No problem at all. Um, so let me let me then go and start. And start actually not in Latin America, but starting in other countries, some of the largest countries or more significant in the world, um, where, um, as you might know, inequality has increased very significantly in the last 30, um, for 30, 40 years. So there you have um, data from Piketty's project in Paris on the income share of the uh, richest 1%. And you can see that it has increased um, all across the world and in the largest countries, in some of them very significantly. So um, the US and India are here, the most significant ones um, in which their income share of that population actually um, almost doubled in one case and more than doubled uh, in the other. So clearly inequality has become a central part of how we think about the world and a central part of why we worry about the state of the world today. And of course I say the top 1%, but it's, it's even worse. Um, there you have um, data uh, on the US in particular until 2015, and we can, you can see that a very significant part of the uh, economic growth that took place in that country uh, in that period actually went to the hands of the top 0.01%. So really when we talk about inequality and when we talk about the processes that are taking place in the global economy in recent um, decades, what we are talking about is about the concentration of income in a few hands. A problem that sounds very Latin American um, because of course we know that Latin America has um, historically, at least for um, the 20th century, if not earlier, and we can enter into that um, debate later if you want, uh, has been a region um, not only characterized by very high inequality, according to some, maybe the region with the highest inequality in the world, uh, but also with inequality because of the concentration of income at the top. Um, as uh, the World Bank's uh, report breaking in quick history, uh, now two decades ago already argued, uh, Latin America is unequal, not because the poor are very poor, because, but because the rich are very rich. So then the question that immediately comes uh, for those of us that work on Latin America, are from Latin America and think about Latin America is what does the region uh, teach to the rest of the world? What does the fact that here we have a set of countries um, that have lived with huge concentration of income for a long time tell us, uh, tell to other countries that might be experiencing those trends much more recently? And what should we learn from them? What are the warnings at the same time um, that they should experience? And here I want to make two apologies or two caveats, which is one, I'm going to talk about the region uh, as a whole, um, knowing that this is obviously a very different region uh, where we have um, countries that are almost continents like Brazil with tiny countries like El Salvador, when we have countries like Chile, whose uh, GDP per capita is closer to Spain than to say Bolivia's. I do think that is still useful to talk about the region as a whole because all the countries, including Argentina and Uruguay, have relatively high levels of inequality uh, from a comparative perspective. And therefore, um, they, they share uh, this challenge uh, that is the one that we are interested in. The second caveat is that I'm going to talk about trends and processes uh, in quite broad terms. Um, and uh, that's because I, I really want to think precisely about those 
stylized facts, if you want, those things that uh, characterize the region in broad terms. Obviously, if you go to a specific moment in history, a specific countries, a specific regions, um, some of these things uh, would have to be nuanced in very significant ways. So what are those lessons? And I want to think about lessons in historical perspective. I want to say that inequality is not uh, a phenomenon that we should study from one year to the next or from five years to the next, that we should assume that is going to change very radically, but we should think about inequality very much as a structural phenomenon which requires uh, to be studied historically. And the first big lesson, um, or the whole set of big lessons are going to be negative, but then I want to finish with a whole set of uh, interesting positive lessons um, and learnings that Latin America brings to the discussion. The first has to do with the cost of inequality. The fact that I think the Latin American experience clearly shows um, that inequality is a problem uh, in several spheres. In the environmental sphere, which is not one I discuss in the paper, but it's one that um, I'm thinking a little bit more about, partly because in the context of uh, our own teaching in, in uh, international development in the department, we really are starting to think much more about uh, how we incorporate the environment and environmental challenges. Um, and of course, as, you, as soon as you do that, you recognize that uh, inequality influences some of the ways the environment and natural resources are used in the region in very significant ways. The second is political. And then the other two, which I want to discuss today are the economic and the social cost. I discuss these two and not the political one, even if this is of course a governance and democracy series, um, partly because as you will see, the political is in some ways embedded uh, in the other problems. Um, and many of the ways in which um, the um, inequality and concentration of income influences um, the economy are through um, some uh, political processes and political forces. So let me then in the next few minutes um, discuss what I think are uh, uh, some of the economic costs of con the concentration of income in the region uh, and some of the, those social costs um, to then, as I say, move to um, some of the more positive lessons. So what, what are some of the economic costs? And here it's of course important to recognize that um, there's still an influential literature in neoclassical economics. Um, Gregory Mankiw wrote a book uh, in defense of the 1% uh, a few years back that assumes that inequality might actually be a, a necessary evil for economic growth or even positive for economic growth. But of course, when we think about the region, that's not the case. Um, Latin America has um, consistently struggled to converge to the GDP per capita of the wealthiest countries in the world. Um, and um, this has been for a whole set of different reasons, but I want to argue that uh, inequality has been a significant one through at least four uh, important channels. The first is the education channel, is the fact that um, in context of high concentration of income, uh, which also leads to high concentration of um, economic activity in relatively few hands, um, those actors at the top uh, have had relatively limited incentives um, to promote investment in education initially or in quality education during the 20th um, century. And here, of course, I'm uh, borrowing on some of the work on 
um, varieties of capitalism um, uh, that um, I remember when, when I was um, starting my career and I was still at the Institute, um, Maxine and I discussed um, so much uh, and did a special issue on the topic. So Latin America, as many of you know, um, a, a struggled uh, to promote uh, universal education for uh, a long time. So uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, only Chile, Argentina, Costa Rica, and Uruguay uh, had mass primary education. And this was already 75 years later than, for example, Canada. At that time, at the beginning of the 20th century, the literacy rate um, was only 17% in Bolivia, 15% in Brazil, or 22% in Mexico compared to uh, more than 90% in um, uh, Canada. And there's a whole set of literature that many of you know very well, uh, led by um, in German and Sokolov, um, another actor, another authors, which um, argue how um, that a low level of education was not an accident, but had a lot to do with an economic model controlled by a few hands, which had their interest primarily in the primary sector and which saw investment in education as a problem because it would increase uh, citizenship demands instead of being worried about the production implications. Of course, many of you will say, I didn't come to a talk on history, uh, and things did change, Diego, a lot in the, in the 20th century. It is true. Uh, primary education became universal uh, by the 1970s and 80s in most of the region. Um, secondary education also expanded significantly. But of course, the problem then became one that we know very well of the different in the quality of education between different sectors. So we know, for example, uh, in the PISA uh, results, um, the exams promoted by the OECD, with, which with all its problems are the best way to um, think about uh, uh, the quality of education comparatively, that 63% um, of Latin American 15-year-olds uh, who participated in the, in the exam uh, in 2012 uh, did not have the expected level of math compared to, to just 23% in the wealthy countries or 9% in Asia Pacific. And of course the results in terms of uh, right, reading and writing and in terms also of primary education students were similar. And again, here the, the key is that uh, at the center of the uh, insufficient investment in high quality education in the, in the public sector, is uh, the type of economic structure characterized by concentration of income, but also concentration of economic activity in a few hands. Um, these are um, business groups and business interests that have very limited incentive to invest in uh, education because as Ben Schneider has shown, they really not require high levels of uh, human capital to remain competitive in the sectors that they control, dominate, and are important, including natural resources or, for example, uh, trade and commerce. It's also true that it's not only that, but also that the upper middle class and the wealthy tend to take their children to um, a relatively high quality private education and therefore have no incentives to uh, fight for a better 
um, public um, education. So a quote from two experts in the, in the Inter-American Development Bank describes this trend very well. And I quote, in general, the children of the uh, people, uh, politically influenced people go to private schools in primary and secondary. It is because of this that they don't suffer directly the weaknesses of the public education system. This reduces the urgency that they would otherwise have to pressure politicians to make difficult decisions. Let me move to the second cost, um, which has to do with, um, sorry, I, let me admit people, I guess because of that. Well, um, so the second has to do with uh, the insufficient innovation that takes place in Latin America, and that of course constrains economic growth in the region. Again, I'm by no means arguing that inequality is the only reason why innovation is insufficient, but I think it's a very significant one. And it is one because uh, the economies of Latin America, because of the concentration of income and opportunities are divided between two large big sectors. One is uh, the um, large, uh, business groups um, with interest in different sectors of the economy, and the rest is a very large informal sector. In the case of uh, the large business groups that uh, uh, own most of the medium and large companies, the, my argument is that because they uh, have uh, either monopoly or oligopoly power over the most profitable activities in the uh, country, they have uh, are making sufficient money to have limited incentives to actually try to move to sectors where competition from uh, China or from Europe or from the US would be much more intensive. The data on uh, the structure of uh, economic um, sectors in Latin America is quite interesting. So for example, uh, studies in Peru show that just two companies control basically all the uh, production and selling of beer, or telecommunications, uh, that just two companies control um, uh, the airline sector or control 80% of milk business or 60% of cement. Uh, we could have similar um, studies for the cases of Chile, um, where sectors like pharmaceuticals are uh, in the hands of three or four um, different sectors. Sorry, let me again. Admit to other people, yeah. Um, or um, in play in countries like Mexico, and it's of course important to emphasize that this is not a spontaneous process. That this process of concentration is not simply about the structure of markets, but about the role of the state uh, in shaping the rules of the game in favor of these business groups consistently across time. Not only they're in the face of import substitution, but also more recently during the process of privatization uh, and the regulation during the neoliberal era. And in the book, I of course discuss examples like uh, uh, the Mexican one, where uh, Slim, one of the richest men in the world, owns most of that wealth to the process of privatization. And the key here is that, again, it's about incentives, is that these business groups that have most of their income, uh, that benefit from the concentration of um, opportunities, 
have very limited incentives to then try to move and develop competi uh, competitiveness in other sectors of the economy. And the result is that uh, it's not only the research and development spending is very low in Latin America, but actually that the share of that spending that is in the hands of the private sector is particularly low. So actually of the whole spending in research and development uh, in the region, only one third is done by private companies compared to 50% in the case of Asia or 70% in the case of the OECD countries. Moreover, the probability of um, companies introducing new products to the market is 20 percentage points lower in Latin America than in parts of Europe. The other side of the coin of the economic structure of the region is, of course, a very large uh, sector of self-employed workers and small firms who represent around 60% of total employment in Latin America. And I'm quoting here a study from uh, the Spanish professor Javier Vidal. Um, they, uh, these companies are characterized by low productivity and difficulties to internationalize their activities and to incorporate technological innovations. So in many ways, we have one sector that has no incentive to innovate, another sector that have no resources to innovate and the structure of those sectors being very linked to the structures of inequality in the region. Um, let me move to the third, which is um, taxation. Um, as several of you know, um, taxes are um, Latin American countries with the exception of Argentina and Brazil, um, consistently um, have lower tax revenues that one is, would expect based on their GDP per capita. Something I discussed um, quite a long time in a paper um, that was part of a book that I uh, co-edited with Ewan Morgan again um, at then the Institute of the Americas and now the Institute of the UCL Institute of the Americas. And um, this is particularly worrying because uh, it's not only that total taxes are low, but direct taxes um, and taxes, for example, on property are much lower than in other countries, including the OECD. And uh, in the book, I borrow from the uh, work of people like uh, Tasha Fairfield at the London School of Economics or of NGOs like Oxfam to show the different mechanisms that the elite has consistently used to try to uh, reduce uh, and maintain taxations at a very low level. And that has to do with the elite's control of the mass media, which have actually allowed them to shape debates around taxation and around austerity to a much larger extent than in other parts of the world. I also discussed revolving doors. So the fact that many of the ministers of finance in the region have had uh, previous links to uh, large business groups, uh, leading to very significant uh, problems of conflict of interest. <coughs> I discussed as well the importance of the um, role of um, uh, the business elite in funding uh, electoral campaigns and shaping not just uh, the uh, behavior of political parties, but also uh, building very close relations to uh, the judicial system in countries like um, Guatemala. And finally, uh, of course, the low levels of taxation are linked as well um, to the inability of the state 
to avoid um, a capital flies and expansion of tax havens. So uh, there's a whole set of um, good studies coming out of um, scandals like uh, the Swiss leaks that reveal the amount and extent of uh, uh, the extent to which Latin Americans use uh, tax havens to try to reduce um, their um, tax levels. Uh, moreover, in, in data that I find particularly interesting, the Tax Justice Network estimates that Brazilians have more than 519 uh, billion US dollars hidden in offshore accounts, which is equal to 160% of their forage debt. In Venezuela, the amount of money that uh, the wealthy have in tax havens is equivalent to more than 700% of the country's total foreign debt. Um, I was going to discuss also financial crisis, but I'm a little bit conscious of time. So let me actually move um, to the second big argument that I want to make, um, which is that is not only that inequality leads to these negative outcomes, including low investment in education, uh, research and development, but that those bad outcomes contribute to the perpetuation of, of inequality over time. They lead to a whole set of vicious circles that explain why inequality is so difficult to reduce and also that constitute a particular warning for countries like the US, which have witnessed an increasing inequality recently and could easily be entering into the type of vicious circles that will make the reduction of inequality harder and harder in the future. So in this case, in the case of the economic vicious circles, this is uh, driven by the fact that lack of investment in education and research and development has led to lack of economic dynamism, relatively low economic growth, but also relatively weak structural transformation as the uh, ECLAC has shown over and over. And this leads to dual uh, labor markets um, in which the quality of employment is very different for different groups of the population leading to uh, the perpetuation of inequality over time. Let me move secondly to illustrate the type of arguments that I make in the book to the social cost of inequality in Latin America. And here Diego, I want to discuss. Diego, yes. Diego, sorry to interrupt you. Can you make me co host so I can uh, mute some people? Sure. Because, uh, sorry about that. No, no problem. So, how, how do I do that? Sorry, I should have know by now. But... Little, there is a little square in the top. Uh, right, like a, if you if you go to my image, there's a little square with three dots. You click there, and you can make me. Okay, uh, so oh, so I have to go to you. Yes, but ah, here you are. So I know it's just me, but how do I know which? I ah, no, because you are talking. Okay, uh, because otherwise there's so many Mr. <laughs> Castañedas. Uh, <laughs> keep talking. Can you talk? Ah, there you are. Okay. I'm here. Co more, more, make co-host. Yeah. So hopefully Sorry, you are. Sorry about that. Not at all. Um, <laughs> that way. Okay. Yeah. So I'm back. So I was telling you about the uh, social cost of inequality. Uh, and I want to discuss three main ones. The first, of course, has to do with violence. 
Uh, we know that it's not only that Latin America is one of the most unequal regions of the world, but one where violence is particularly prevalent. Um, so a few years ago in the mid 2010s, uh, the homicide rate in Latin America was three times higher than the global average. And in a ranking of the 50 most violent uh, cities in the world, uh, 43 of them were Latin American. And of course, this is not just about homicide rates, but um, also if we believe the statistics, the reported robberies in Latin America are also much larger in terms of robberies per 100,000 uh, people than in any other region. And this has, uh, according to the sociological literature, much to do with the relation with inequality. So Martin Daly, Professor Emeritus of Psychology in Canada says very clearly, inequality predicts murder rates, and I quote, better than any other variable. I give the quote, if you, your social reputation in the milieu is all you've got, you've got to defend it. Inequality makes these confrontations more fraught because there's much more at stake when there are winners and losers, and you can see that you are on track to be one of the losers. And I think this quote, which is done for a much broader study, not just in Latin America, reflects very well how we can think about much of the violence in Latin America, uh, including, for example, the Maras uh, in uh, Central America, which obviously emerged in the region, um, which obviously, sorry, in the last few years, um, um, have and can be explained by forces that go beyond uh, inequality, including, for example, the role of the US and US policy, but that has a lot to do with the sense of exclusion, the sense of not belonging to a society, and the sense that um, you are being exploited by some of the winners in society, including the economic and political elite. And again, in, in the book, I go over a whole set of examples of primarily uh, the life experiences of uh, young uh, men uh, who tend to be both the ones that suffer from most of the violence uh, in numbers um, and also the ones that are the perpetrators of that violence. It is, um, again, we know that there are other forces at play, but it is very difficult uh, not to recognize um, that the social consequence that inequality creates in terms of exclusion and in terms of discontent about the role of particular groups in society, the one that leads um, to uh, violence. And by the way, with some exceptions, um, like El Salvador, which if you believe the numbers have relatively low levels of inequality, but high levels of violence, in Latin America, in comparison different countries, there's a clear correlation between the most violent countries and the most unequal countries. The second one has to do with social and spatial segregation. The fact that inequality has led to a particular way of developing both space, our cities, but also our social services. So of course, the shape of the cities in Latin America has changed across the years, uh, but in the last 20 years, uh, what we see in our cities is, uh, if you want, islands of wealth in oceans of poverty. So the idea that um, the, the wealthy have consistently been able to protect uh, the way they live, 
through um, the, the, the creation of walls, cameras and armies of private security that separates their lives from the lives of the poor in the same neighborhood. And I go with a whole set of examples, um, including examples from a very nice study of uh, in Mexico, where a, a whole group of young people explain how different it is um, their experience in Mexico with the experience of one of them that traveled to Canada in terms of their interactions uh, with groups from other social groups. Of course, um, and here um, Maxine and others have uh, made significant contributions, social policy itself remains highly segmented. And that segmentation has its roots in inequality and in the weakness of the middle class or uh, broad segments of the middle class to demand uh, broad universal services. So I could give you a whole set of um, data about um, how uh, most of the wealthy have access to private uh, health insurance and as we discussed before, high quality education. Uh, compared to others. So in Brazil, three out of five individuals in the top 20% have complementary private health insurance compared to just 5% across the bottom quintile. In Chile, also 60% of those with private health care are in the top 20%. And the last significant cost, and in some ways I think probably uh, the most significant for the region and one of the most worrying is uh, the lack of trust. So it is not only that Latin Americans don't trust its institutions, is that they don't trust each other. So according to data from Latin Amerometro, more than 60% of Brazilians, more than 50% of Bolivians and Peruvians, and more than 40% of Panamanian, uh, people from Panada, Venezuelans and Dominicans uh, do not trust their own uh, uh, communities. This is compared to 20% uh, in the case of the US, which has never been considered a particularly trusted, trustful um, country anyway. And uh, there are quite interesting work from the IDV, uh, among others, that show um, the links between high concentration of income and lack of trust. And basically, uh, the idea that in um, high uh, in countries that are highly unequal, um, different groups of the population see their interest as very different to those of other groups in society, and see uh, other groups, and particularly the poor, with high skepticism. Um, so more than forty-five percent um, of citizens in twelve of the eighteen Latin American countries. Uh, think that um, those receiving social assistance are um, just um, lazy. And um, this lack of trust has also to do or is connected to inequality in a second way, which is inequality has led to uh, the uh, control of political institutions by uh, a certain group of the elite, and therefore a majority of the population thinking that those institutions are not working for them. Again, the second part of my argument around the social cost is about vicious circles, is that these costs in themselves create more and more difficulties to reduce inequality. 
So in the case of segregated spaces and lack of trust, for me, the argument has a lot to do with the literature on the development of welfare states in other parts of the world that I have discussed with my colleague, Juliana Martinez. So basically, when there are segregated spaces and uh, segregated services, there are simply not places where people can interact with each other. There are simply not ways for one to recognize in the other a subject of rights, a subject of interest. And this is very clear when one thinks about the development, for example, of education or the development of a space, the lack of use of parks uh, in many of the Latin American cities. But when people don't recognize each other, creating the type of cross-class coalitions that are required to uh, develop the policies that will redistribute income and opportunities is almost impossible. Another vicious circles that have to do with uh, inequality have to do with the fact that violence does not take place equally across the space. This is one of the things that sometimes we forget, especially uh, newspapers and uh, investors, um, but that we should always remember. So for example, in Bogota, 98% of all homicides uh, that take place, take place in only 2% of all the cities, of all the streets, excuse me. And that repeats itself in other cities of the region. And that means that uh, violence is concentrated. That means that the negative impact of violence in terms of investment, in terms of business opportunities, in terms of the development of a space and neighborhoods, it's also extremely uneven, reproducing inequality over time. Okay, so I have tried in the first, I think, 30 minutes um, to um, explain some of the cost of uh, inequality. But what I think it's interesting is that um, Latin America um, also is a, a land of uh, successful, more or less successful, but always interesting experiences or to, of um, a, attempts to reduce inequality, to fight uh, inequality over time. And I have to say, and here is a parenthesis, that I owe uh, this discussion and the writing a chapter about the positives um, to colleagues like Salvador Martin, who remind me that I was writing the type of book that you should never write, almost saying that everything is problematic in Latin America without recognizing the huge dynamism in terms of both political and social processes and also intellectual processes that take place in the region. Let me make another parenthesis before I uh, illustrate some of these positives. And I love this parenthesis because uh, it shows um, still how self-referential some of the politicians and some of the uh, literature in the global north is. So here you have an advisor of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez writing two or three years ago um, about the experience in the UK and the US and saying it makes sense that the two countries that fell to neoliberalism first, he's referring to the US and the UK, maybe the farthest along in organizing resistance to it. I think any of you that work on Latin America will simply find this quote uh, a joke to say the least. In fact, and the Norwegian professor Alt Nielsen referring to this piece um, in the new statement argues, this piece is actually nothing short of scandalous. The fact of the matter is that when it comes to both suffering the brunt of neoliberalism 
but also organizing resistance to it, the Global South has been at the frontier. And of course, Latin America, I would argue, has been at the frontier of the fight against neoliberalism and against inequality more broadly. And this is not surprising because in a way, the region, despite all the weaknesses of democracy, has a very significant particularity in the global economy, which is it's a region with high level of inequality, but also with certain level of democratic traditions, at least with certain rights in parts of the uh, region that were not present, say, in parts of Sahara, Sahara, Sub-Saharan Africa or Asia for most of the 20th and 21st century. And therefore, it's a region where there were all the incentives to fight inequality, but also some political and social windows of opportunity to do so. Um, in the book, I concentrate on three types of positive lessons, um, which I apologize, I'm going to discuss here uh, very quickly, but I hope it gives you a sense both of the argument, but also um, gives you a sense to disagree with some of uh, the examples I might want to use. Let me focus especially on ideas and actors. So I think um, the, what is interesting about Latin America is that it has consistently been a region which has created some of the most sophisticated and interesting ideas about how to think about inequality and the consequences of inequality, not just in the social sciences, but also in religion and in other areas. Let me put you, uh, give you uh, just three examples, just basically mentioning them. So I discuss in the book structuralism in economics. Um, as you know, structural economics uh, was born uh, in Latin America when uh, the Economic Commission for Latin America uh, and uh, then the Economic Commission of Latin America, now the Economic Commission of Latin America and the Caribbean was created uh, in the late 1940s and um, led by Raul Previch and others it explains inequality and it places inequality at the heart of the way development takes place. It explains um, the roots of inequality, both in terms of the place of Latin America in the global economy, but also in terms of the role of elite and political power. It's interesting that Previch, not as a Moglan Robinson and not any other neoclassical political economies, was talking about the link between economic and political power much earlier than any other. And I quote in his book of the 1982, uh, capitalism in the periphery, quote, promotes the concentration of economic power and inequality. And the concentration of economic power leads to the concentration of political power in the most favored strata. So I think that, that this is an interesting approach to think about how the, the structure of the economy links to the structure of politics and perpetuates inequality over time. In the book, I also discuss theology of liberation, which I think is one of the most uh, interesting attempts uh, in religion to place uh, the poor at the heart and to think about the links between religions, social change, and the power of certain groups, both within the Catholic Church but at South the Catholic Church as well. And finally, um, I discuss um, um, the work um, uh, on uh, uh, Paulo Freire, sorry, Paulo Freire and um, all the pedagogy of the oppressed. 
and how much it has shaped debates about education and understanding of education in other parts of the world. Regarding actors, um, what I find particularly interesting is the role of um, social movements in Latin America. And again, like I have done in the rest of the talk, but I hope still uh, helping you to think about this and opening a whole um, discussion in the next 40 minutes, uh, let me give you a very broad, broad brush, um, which is based on reflections around some of the most important and dynamic social movements in Latin America, from uh, the landless movement in Brazil um, to the Zapatistas in Mexico, those two around the rural sector, two uh, movements that have been more uh, centered on the middle class, including the Chilean student movement and um, the uh, mass and the Cocalero movement in Bolivia. They are all, of course, very different movements, but all of them have very significant lessons um, to um, the rest of the world in terms of the dynamism, but in terms of some of the reasons that have led to their relative success. Um, so these social movements, um, I think, uh, offer four key lessons. The first, all of them were very successful at linking a specific needs, land, access to uh, coca, or the price of um, the uh, bus and transportation in the case of the student movement in Chile, so they, they started by very specific needs and demands, but they were able to broaden this to more ambitious agendas and new discourses about what, which type of development was possible. They are in general um, movements that make an effort to democratize themselves. They reject personalistic leadership and in general, or not in all cases, they also make a big effort to promote gender equality uh, in the way they operate. They have been very creative uh, movements. And in fact, I think other movements in the world like the Indignados in uh, Spain actually learn a lot from the way in which um, social movements in Latin America had uh, used narratives, storytelling and framing, including the use of social media consistently. And I think here, for example, uh, the Chilean student movement has been uh, fantastic at using social movement in creative ways to become actually uh, a movement that was attractive instead of threatening for a large majority of the population. And finally, not in all cases, but in several of the cases, these are movements that linked successfully to political parties while simultaneously be, uh, remaining independent and not co-opted from them. Now, the question that you might ask is, okay, if I say that there's all of these positive lessons, why is that, as I showed from the beginning, Latin America remains the most unequal region in the world? And here, I think it's where agency and structure fight with each other, right? Uh, these agential processes of better ideas or interesting ideas and social movements um, confront uh, a structure of vicious circles, as I described before, that is very difficult to erode. It's actually very difficult um, to, despite their operations, um, to um, reduce or diversify the economy or to promote 
uh, a different a, a way of development of social spaces in the region. So let me conclude, um, Nestor, with um, four or five uh, conclusions, and then um, I very much look forward to uh, your comments. The first claim I want to make uh, that I made at the beginning, but I think it's extremely important methodologically, and it's one that I encourage all, um, for example, um, young researchers and students that might be with us, is to think about inequality very much as a structural long-term phenomenon. It doesn't make sense to think about whether the Gini coefficient has increased or decreased by two percentage points from last year to today. The important thing is to understand the structural development of the problem over time and whether structurally things are changing or are not uh, over that long run. The second is, um, I think inequality, and I think it's very evident that inequality uh, is one of the most significant problems uh, in today's world uh, and is behind some of the most significant political problems, including polarization. And of course, in many countries, not all, but in many, uh, it has gotten even worse because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And if that's the case, clearly Latin America is a region to consider, is a region to learn from if we want to think about why we should be worried about inequality, but it's also a region to learn from if we want to think uh, about why that inequality perpetuates over time because of vicious circles. Um, I think it's also, and I think this is important, not just a region that gives us warnings, but a region that give us some uh, reasons for hope, uh, that gives us a whole set of ideas around how to interpret the economy and a whole set of uh, experiences around how to uh, protest against this type of structures that uh, could be useful for many other uh, regions. And I think that some of you might say, well, yes, this is very interesting, but Latin America is very different to other parts of the world. I actually are increasingly convinced that there are other parts of the world. And every time I think about the US, I think the US in particular that are becoming much more and more Latin American. And of course, I'm not the only one. Let me finish with a quote from Martin Wolf, uh, the chief economist commentator of the Financial Times uh, that argue as I was finishing the book that uh, some Western economies have become more Latin America in the terms of their distribution of income, the politics have also become more Latin American. And therefore I would invite all of us, which I imagine is most of us in this call that are Latin Americanists and work on Latin America to really think about what the region can teach, what the teaching in the region tells us in terms of warnings when thinking about one of the most significant challenges of the 21st century. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, uh, Diego. Uh, this, is, this is fantastic. Uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, many of people here want to ask questions or make comments. So I just want to, to start the conversation with a, with a couple of quick, quick questions. Uh, uh, basically, uh, things that I, I mean, I have to say first of all that I, I read your book during the second lockdown, and it was a great companion for those long days uh, <laughs> trapped at home. At home, so so it was. It, 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 it's a really great book, and I really enjoyed it, reading it. Uh, 
I have two specific questions. The first one is, uh, a, a very recently, the UMPD uh, has uh, basically defined uh, a, a, the, the, the economic model or, or, or the, the, the economic structure of Latin America as, uh, as, as in the middle of a high inequality, low growth, low growth trap, right? Uh, so they basically, not only the UNPD, but also uh, in the Inter-American Development Bank, they're trying to make the connection between, or, or create, between inequality and economic growth. And, and they're trying to, to uh, argue that inequality is not only bad in social terms, uh, but it's also really, or in, in in terms of economic development, but also in terms of for for economic growth and for productivity. So I wonder if 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 based on your on your research on the topic, uh, the if you find that link, if if, if 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 you find that that link is actually clear between productivity and uh, um, high levels of inequality. And if we can, and if, it's, if you consider that is a right way to understand the problem, uh, to connect both things, inequality and growth. That, that's the first one. And the second one is more, it's a broader question in terms of, and I guess you have a whole chapter of, on this in, in, in your book, uh, which is the final chapter of your book. And is uh, is uh, well. I mean, now that you have presented this overview uh, 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 on the issue of inequality in, in Latin America and the different costs of inequality in the region, uh, what and, and the lessons that we can learn from the region, uh, the the big question is well, what what should we do now uh, in how we could tackle the issue. Uh, in the region and what kind of policies are the most important or the most urgent policies in order to reduce inequality and to break this uh, negative cycle uh, that you have just described. Should I start uh, or do you want me to take a few more or up to you totally? Let me take these two and then we can maybe accumulate others. Perfect. Thank you so much, Nestor. Thank you so especially for your kind words about the book, the fact that I um, easy the lockdown of anyone with the book instead of making it more boring, um, just made my life. I'm almost uh, ready to leave the conversation and just uh, celebrate with my with my wife and my children um, at home. Um, but let me also answer this and actually connect the two. So yes, I think the UNDP's most recent report um, is actually fascinating and very complementary to some of the issues, right? Because, for example, they have a whole discussion around um, the economic structure and the difficulties of um, small and medium firms in the region to develop because of inequality that I think is very complementary um, to the explanations I have. I guess what I didn't like, and I did tell Marcela uh, of the book, is that basically it's a book that says uh, this is particularly a political problem, a problem around the concentration of resources and political opportunities. And then they end up the book with a whole set of policy recommendations that have nothing to do with politics. And this links to your, your second question. 
we could now discuss um, the whole discussion of taxation that you work so well and have done, contributed so much with uh, my colleague, colleague David Doyle and others. We could discuss universalism, but I guess my main message about solutions is that we should not be allowed to ever again discuss policy without politics, la politica, las políticas without la política. Um, that every time we make a policy recommendation, we should think about what are the political processes that we need to trigger for these policies to be introduced. Because otherwise we really don't understand the, the nature of inequality, which is that it's at the same time an economic problem, but one driven by political concentration. Political concentration. So to give you an example, if one is going to promote universal social policies, I think one should try, as Juliana and I have tried, to explain how the initial reforms that you introduce will create a shift in class coalitions that will lead to further demands for redistribution over the long run. Or the same, uh, I, I'm a little bit hesitant to say anything about taxation in your presence, but again, that's how I would think a little bit about it, right? Is who are the actors that are going to demand higher taxes? Where do you start? Which is the coalition that you need to coordinate first, but also how the initial reform is going to trigger changes in the social structure that will allow further changes over time. And this does two things at the same time. It, it links politics and policy, which I think is very important, but also it really emphasizes that inequality is not a problem that we are going to solve over two years. It's a problem that we are going to solve by um, create, substituting the vicious circles that I have described, but virtuous circles based on new politics, creating new policy, sorry, new policies, creating new politics that don't lie to more demand for new uh, politics. And I found, uh, without wanting to be very critical, the UNDP missing a very big opportunity because it put it some of these things in the agenda, but it simply didn't take the final step that I think it's important uh, for all of us to take. Thank you very much, Diego. Uh, Maxine, please. Hi, Diego. Thanks so much for a brilliant talk and so many important issues and questions that you've put on the table for us, as well as some answers. Um, I very much agreed with your last point about the importance of politics, but also the, the problem of stuckness, you know, these interlocking structural conditions that actually lock the situation down so much and thinking about breakthroughs and thinking about some of your other work where you've been sort of trying to show us that there are breakthrough cases um, subject to certain kinds of conditions being present. And I, it led me to ask the question, um, how do you incentivize, you know, the local elites to invest more in forms of economic development that would be more, you know, just more successful in bringing more of the uh, population into the economy? And I'm thinking, and this, this does speak to, to a lot of what you've been arguing. You take the case of Uruguay, small country, population of 3 million, and it's set up, uh, I don't know how or by whom, um, the first kind of degree in computer programming in Latin America, following MIT's example. And as a result, or for other reasons as well, no doubt, 
Uruguay is a leading exporter of <laughs> software innovation. And it's a very interesting case study because is this related to the fact that Uruguay, looking at your previous work on Uruguay, has been a fairly, you know, a reasonably well-developed, more egalitarian society with universal social policies and education. Is this a good example, perhaps, of what you are saying? Thank you. Thank you so much, Maxine. I think I'll take a couple, if that's okay, um, Nestor and then... Yeah, that sounds perfect. Uh, Bill? Thanks, Nesta. Um, thank you so much, Diego. It's really lovely to see you. Um, you were talking about people from the past, and of course you taught me, uh, in a very literal sense, everything I know about um, economics. Um, I've got two questions, and they're sort of building on what Nestor and Maxine have, have said, um, and they might seem a bit pessimistic or naive or and the second one might seem a bit personal so ignore them if you want um the first one is that you know both the fact of latin american inequality and the study and the knowledge of latin american inequality have been around for ages right for many many decades if not centuries uh, and at, but at the same time there's this interesting phenomenon that you mentioned that that given tendencies in the global um, northwest it seems that certainly over the last 20 years things like gated communities the gig economy that point that martin wolf makes in a, maybe in a slightly glib way lots of people have been saying for a while in a more subtle way um that actually latin america is kind of a glimpse of all our futures um and and that is not distinct from your very good point about latin america having both neoliberal experiments and the most trenchant and uh, innovative discontents from neoliberalism, right? They had to be, <laughs> um, which I think is, is certainly right. But it also makes me wonder if Latin America has sort of in a post-social democratic moment without in most places having had social democracy, um, which is a bit more of a pessimistic way of looking at it, I suppose. Um, so to pick up on the point about that you, you briefly mentioned dependency and, and structural explanations, it seems to me that the, the, the kind of incentives are obviously not there for elites. Maxine mentioned that. And um, I, th I think, you know, nudging nudging certain Latin American elites is, is not going lead, <laughs> to lead anywhere. Um, but there's also poor incentives for those outside of the region to change things because it, it fits reasonably well into the, into the global economic model. So uh, you kind of came onto this at the very end, but is, is large scale structural change completely off the table? Um, as, a, as a political project in, in Latin America. And the second question, uh, again, ignore this if you think this is too personal, but do you find it more energizing or more depressing to be, to be studying something that has not fundamentally changed for so long? Bits of your talk today, and it's a brilliant book, and a, it was a fantastic, a very clear talk. You're straying into you know, almost into moral philosophy, um, uh, as well as political economy. It's a, and these are huge questions of like, how, how does one conduct oneself, not only as a researcher, but as a citizen, uh, whether a citizen of Latin America or a citizen of, of the world. And um, I just thought it'd be nice to have a bit of, oh, sorry, perhaps there, um, an interesting um, comment on, you know, how, how do you stand back from all this research or, or do you find yourself getting really sucked into it? On a moral, in a moral capacity. Thanks. 
Perfect. Let, let me take those two. Thank you so much um, to Maxine and Bill. And it's so nice to see you in, in the screen. Again, I would prefer to see you in person, but oh well. Um, so I think, uh, Maxine, your, your, your question is obviously a key one um, and one that we need to think uh, over and over. Um, and, and let me just say three things uh, about this issue of incentives of, of, the, of the elite. Um, so I, we were in a, in a talk yesterday, very good one on in a project that the LSE is doing on uh, that try to relate structural economic structural transformation with uh, inequality, a little bit like you were saying. And um, Amir finished um, his research saying basically that the lead will have incentives to reduce inequality, which I think it just doesn't make any sense. And this goes also to Bill's uh, comment. Um, and there will be only two ways in which the lead can be forced to think about some of the issues that you were saying, uh, Maxine, I think. The one is to play, um, to try to play different segments of the lead and recognize that ha they have very different interests. Um, recognize that the financial sector is very different to some of the other activities and recognize that, for example, there might be a number of small and medium firms that can be at the heart of the development of, say, software in Uruguay. So we, we, we simply need, and this again goes to um, build your, your question of how to think about the region, we need much more research, in my view, on elites, on who are the elites, what do they want, but also when they have contradictory interests that we can try to use. And the second, of course, is that we know the elite also respond when they are threatened. Um, and it's interesting that, for example, um, some of the responses to COVID-19, I don't think we should minimize because um, they were, they came from a political and government elite that felt threatened, both politically and economically, and then they had to do some things. Maybe not as significant as we wanted, but they introduced some of redistribute policies for example, that were extremely important. I also think, uh, Maxine, going to your example, Uruguay, which I enjoy, that um, thinking about economic transformation in the context of inequality requires also to think about industrial policy in two different ways and not just in the traditional one. So traditionally, we think about inequality in industrial policy only about moving the countries closer to the technological frontier. But we know that if we only do that, we are likely to increase inequality, not reduce it, because this will only benefit those workers with very high uh, levels of human capital. This is what happened in uh, Costa Rica since the 1990s. What we need is to try to promote change that leads to both move to the technological frontier, but also support for small and medium companies. And this is very complicated, but again, how do we play different segments of the lead with each other I think uh, will be extremely important. Um, thank you so much, uh, Bill, as well, for the questions. Um, thank you also for saying that you learned um, what you learned from about um, economics from me. I don't know if I believe you, but I, anyway, I, I will take it. Um, I'm slightly worried about talking about social democracy or anything that has to do with the left uh, with you in the room. So I will let you um, think about the left much more than I do. Uh, but I think I will go to two, two answers to your question. The first is that, of course, I haven't discussed a lot of dependency and the role of external forces. Uh, and it's one of the criticisms 
since I really I receive always with a book. I have to say that the reason I didn't do is because I want to take Latin America as the lessons that it offers to places like the US with a very different dependency place. But clearly, if you are going to think about Latin America alone, I totally agree with you that part of the problem is that there's an additional vicious circles created by the interaction between external uh, actors and local elites that make things more complicated. Now, do I think a stru big structural change will be possible? I personally don't. Uh, and I personally don't think that that's how we should think about change uh, in the region. And I say this for a whole set of reasons. First, that I think it's very complicated. Second, that I worry a little about the huge cost that thinking, thinking about big structural change had in the region. Um, there's two or three generations of um, Central Americans that can tell us a lot uh, about what it means to try to promote a very deep structural change. But I think at the same time that there's a lot that can take place by thinking about the small changes. Um, do I think that the likelihood is that those small changes lead to a huge reduction in inequality, say in um, um, Guatemala? No, I think Guatemala is likely to be, uh, have high inequality over the long run. But do I think it's fascinating to remind people that even in Guatemala, there's interesting things that create a small political opportunities that we need to use. Absolutely, because it's in those small opportunities that we have both some possibilities of developing new political processes, but also some possibilities of doing the politics of hope. I think hope without politics is useless, but life without hope is useless as well. And that's, for example, what Julian and I have tried to do in thinking about the pandemic. Guatemala developed a, an emergency cash transfer program that was very small and lasted very little. But then when you think about Guatemala, nobody expected that they were going to start giving money to more than two or three million families in a relatively consistent way. That opens a whole opportunity to think about the Guatemalan state in a very different way. Of course, when you think about most of the people writing on Guatemala, you go back to say, oh no, but we went back to corruption, vaccines are distributed in the worst possible way, et cetera. That's true. But it's also interesting to think about whether we have a small window of opportunity and how we can think about it and how we can change. So I guess for me, what is uh, interesting and it gives me energy and especially my work with, with Juliana is to start thinking and identifying those moments of possibilities uh, knowing very well that realism leads us to the type of pessimism uh, that you were uh, developing. But even within pessimism, we can try to identify the windows and moments for hope. And I think that's fascinating both in terms of research, but in terms of uh, our political activism. Thank you very much, Diego. We have, we're gonna take two more questions from, I don't know your name, sorry. So you have to say your name because there is a glitch. And so I'm from David. You can go ahead, uh, sorry. Oh, David, go ahead. And then the, uh, the, there is another hand. Yeah, this other person should say his name. Thank you, um, Diego. Well, yes, you didn't leave us. You left us probably reaching for the 
for the um, whiskey or something rather than anything else. But um, I mean, how would you go about designing a political system which could resist these apparently irresistible forces of inequality? I mean, I know that in Chile, a lot of people are trying to do this, but it's not particularly a question about Chile. But there's some, you know, we were t- we were we were taught that democracy and economic development and all and apple pie and all that was good and beautiful would would all come together. But obviously, that's well, we, we the democracies that we have are many and varied and often dysfunctional. So that's my question. Is there a way of designing an inst- political institutions that could reverse this? Thank you. Thank you. Um, um, a second question from, yeah, thank you. Go ahead. Um, is that me? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Can you tell us your name, please? Sorry. I'm Stephen, I'm Stephen. Um, okay. First of all, thank you for the talk. Um, I'm a PhD student in US history, so it was nice to kind of escape the bubble for a bit and learn about the rest of the region. Um, but I hope you'll forgive me for my question, because I guess it is linked to the USA. Um, yeah, in the USA, when we talk about closing the inequality gap, we get the usual sound bites of, uh, you know, we're talking people down, You've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Capitalism is freedom. And I just wanted to know, um, what's, um, what, different flavor do, does it, what different flavor does it take in uh, Latin America compared to the USA? Is it uh, informed by cultural and regional differences? Uh, is it uh, radically different? Um, and, or is it kind of much of a muchness? You know, you get this neo, neoliberal philosophy. It just kind of travels across the continent without much change. I hope that makes sense. And thank you. Perfect. Do you want Nestor to me to take this too, or, or should yes, I go to yes, one more? Okay, perfect. Thank you. Perfect. And um, then we can ask for more. I mean, we don't have much perfect. time. Perfect. Thank you. Um, thank you, it's, David. It's, it's great to to see you again. Sorry that is in the screen and not in person. Um, after a while. I don't think I'm going to give you a, a very satisfactory answer in any way, but let me try to think about how I would think about um, this issue. And I think obviously the context of, of Chile is particularly interesting. Um, so obviously I could give you a very traditional one that as, as Nestor says is how I finished the book, um, saying and claiming the importance of strengthening political power, uh, parties, sorry, and its links to social movements. But you will immediately tell me, well, that's actually nearly as com- more complicated than all the things you had said before. I think for me, the, the, is this issue of uh, being pragmatic and progressive in the changes that I would say is the most important. So for me, um, it's about, uh, when I say for me, I should, ha- should say that all of this work is informed by my work uh, with Juliana martinez Franzoni from the University of Costa Rica. Um, it's about thinking about the links between policies and politics. It's about thinking about how changing in some key policies. So for example, in the case of Chile, making healthcare and education more democratic and incorporating more um, parts of the middle class into high quality services will create and start creating more coalitions between that middle class and low income groups 
that start demanding an even further expansion of those services and all those opportunities, that this slowly then makes tax reforms of the ones next to a study more likely and more possible and brings uh, little by little a, a more powerful actor to compensate the power of the elite. And that's what I, 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 I try to, to say and claim is that it's less about designing a whole new political uh, system again, but much more about, for example, how the new constitutional reform in Chile will lead to uh, more opportunities for the reform of education and health that creates more in common interest within society. And I think as soon as we create more common interest, uh, then there's more opportunities. That's part, for example, of why uh, this emergence of the new middle class, which we know it was really the uh, low, middle income, low middle class in Latin America during the 2000s, was promising, but also worrying. Was promising because if that lower middle class constitutes an intersection between the traditional middle class and the poor, then again, we might start having broader groups of the population that demand more redistributed services and programs. If that new middle, uh, emerging middle class simply uh, sees itself in individualistic terms again, then I'm afraid we are stuck in the same place. Thank you also for the second question, which is a fascinating one. And I don't know if I will be able to make justice to. Um, I agree with you that uh, there's two narratives that are important in uh, the US. One is, as you were saying, the one about uh, this being uh, about um, the, the American dream and, and really needing to wear hard, which is linked also to a very false uh, uh, narrative around meritocracy. I think in the, in the Latin American context, obviously selling meritocracy has been more complicated because uh, people realize that there's a whole structure of inequality that makes things complicated. Um, so one has been the traditional neoliberalism, but the other has been um, really about the role of racism uh, and interactions between race, ethnicity and gender as contributing to perpetuate um, inequalities in income uh, in very significant ways. Um, some ways is similarly to the US, although in some ways, for example, the, the complex relationship between race and ethnicity uh, being um, slightly different. Um, I do think, however, that it's interesting and I'm not the right person to study this, but uh, the role, it would be fantastic uh, to have more research on the role and the way meritocracy is presenting in different parts of the Americas and the difference and similarities. And hopefully someone in the Institute of the Americas can, can do more research on, on this issue of meritocracy in terms of narratives in different parts of the region. Thank you very much, Diego. We have a couple of minutes for a, a, a question. So John, if you want to ask your question and then we can close seminar. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Diego, for a very interesting talk. Um, quick question. Um, uh, you, you talk about um, countries as if they are givens and um, th thinking about why Latin American companies haven't maybe done as well as they might have done is 
due to the fact that, that there isn't really a very well-developed regional market, that each, each business sort of operates within its own territory. And, um, uh, and even, if it, even if there were more regional markets to be developed so that companies could gain scale and compete on a, a global uh, level, capital markets are quite constrained. So I wonder if you can just comment on that sort of wider business structure, the capital markets, and what you think about opportunities um, to collaborate, for example, the um, uh, joint um, stock exchange that's being created by, uh, through Mila uh, in the um, uh, Pacific Alliance countries. Thank you, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, so let me uh, just one last question. Uh, yes, sorry, sorry, yes, of course. Camilla, please go ahead. Absolutely. You mute. You mute. Hey, hello. Thank you. Um, just, I, I had a question. Um, thank you also for the presentation. I had a question a little bit on your perspective of this gradual or progressive change which you were suggesting, and on the idea. Um, which I came across in my work is um, that there's also sort of um, this idea of Albert Hishman of having a sort of first and second stage process of change and that maybe the coalitions that we need for more gradual or marginal changes are different than the ones that we need for more structural or deeper changes further on. So I wondered what were your thoughts on that take as well? Um, Thank you. Perfect. Any other, Nestor, or because I see other raising other, that, hands? That's it. That's it. We don't okay, want perfect. to take much more. Perfect. Thank perfect. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, John. So I guess let me let me say a couple of things about this, but also bring it to inequality again, right? Because uh, the question is how the processes you are describing. Um, leads to um, or should be connected to inequality. There's no doubt, as you said, um, that when one wants to think about development more broadly and not just inequality, um, the inability of Latin America to, to develop regional markets and to think about expanding markets regionally, but also linking those markets to and then export to other parts of the world has been one of the significant limits, both in import substitution, but more recently. I guess I would say part of the reasons that never happened has to do precisely with the power of uh, the economic elites themselves, right? Um, despite rhetoric, the economic elites never had any much incentive into seriously developing regional markets because they were afraid of the elites of the neighboring countries. Um, and I think that's very clear in, in for example, the development of uh, Mercosur, but also previously the development where the different elites were worried in particular about um, the Brazilians um, as well. And in the case of capital markets is that uh, despite rhetoric about its, um, maybe its importance as a funding mechanism, uh, in general, Latin American business groups still today uh, fund themselves mainly by reinvestment of profits and reallocation of profits from some parts of their business groups to another and therefore are much less interested in capital markets than um, they should. I guess the interesting question for me is, okay, imagine they were successful. Imagine that some of the countries joined forces with each other 
to develop better regional markets and promote transformation in that case. Would that go together with the reduction of inequality? And I think the answer is no, unless you were able also to put in the agenda things like how do we think about regional social policy? This is not an area I have worked a lot, but clearly, um, if you are going to have coordination and collaboration in the economic sphere, then how do you have more coordination in terms of redistribution would become extremely important, particularly between countries that have a lot of migration between each other, and therefore how the, uh, there's migration of rights uh, would be also extremely important. And Camila, thank you so much. I'm, I'm tempted to only say that I would love to hear more about your own work to think together about what it means. Um, I guess um, I have no doubt of what you say that uh, different reforms might require very different coalitions. Um, in, in our own work with Juliana, what we try to say is that um, imagine that what you want to do is particularly ambitious reforms. So I want to say I'm pragmatic, but pragmatic in looking about ambitious reform. So imagine that what you are thinking is about how you want to develop universal social policies. Clearly what we argue there is that you need to think about which type of changes need to happen initially and how that might or might not create a certain trend for the long run. So, so I guess I wouldn't want to divide between easy reforms and difficult reforms, I would want to divide between first step reforms and how those link to others. But I recognize very well that this is not a very satisfactory um, response to a much more complex uh, political um, picture that you are presenting. And therefore I would just say that it would, it would be great to hear more about your own work and think then about what it means in terms of this notion of uh, the dynamism of the cross coalitions themselves. Thank you very much, Diego. Please, everybody, join me in thanking uh, Diego for such a, a, a excellent presentation and some excellent conversation. Thank you very much for your time. It was very stimulating, and and and, and I mean, I, I could I could stay here for longer, uh, but <laughs> talking about all this. But of course, uh, I don't want to to be abusive. So thank you very much, uh, Diego. It was uh, fantastic, and uh, hopefully. We can see each other in person soon at the Institute uh, so we can continue with these conversations. Thank you so much for the great questions. And I couldn't agree more with your last wish of uh, hoping to see some of you or all of you in person sooner rather than later. Thank and you, thank you everybody. Have a fantastic so night. Much. Great to see you. Bye bye. Thank bye. you very much, everybody. <laughs>